Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now deep beneath Windsor Castle. I am 118 years old, and I want you to know that now is the time for the nation to come together and explore the wonderful and rich tapestry that is British film. With Jason and Brendan, I give to you the greatest podcast about films from Britain done by two Canadian boys. Ladies and gentlemen, for screen and country. Can I go back to bed? Hello, Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new podcast experiment. 100% brand new, unrolled, untainted, unpasteurized podcast goodness. Oh, keep going. I'll let you go for like an hour. Just rattle <laughs> That's all the uns I could come up with. I don't know anything else that is un. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our new podcast about British film and the British Film Institute the British Film Institute's 100 best British films of all British time yes of all <laughs> British time which is of course is a different measurement than North American time it's it's slightly off uh, it's, it's kind of like how the, it's kind of like the metric in the imperial system yeah it's like it's like a British hour is like 62.3 minutes or something <laughs> right it's, it's very strange and that's why British movies are so much longer yeah exactly than... it's why they're so much longer they, they, they get slowed down uh, well I'm Brendan and I'm Jason. And uh, welcome to For Screen and Country. For Screen and Country! I want to... I like how you did a different accent. Thank you. <laughs> and then a British one <laughs> for that <laughs> announcement of a British film podcast. Uh, I wanted to give credit right away because I did kind of put some feelers out to see if anybody had uh, good ideas for a name for the show. Because, you know, I'm not good at naming things. You're, but you're a lot better than naming things. That's what I the hive mind is for, Brendan. That's right. Uh, uh, what? The internet hive mind. That's uh, what we, we ask them questions, they give us answers. Okay. Uh, so, I want to credit right now uh, Daniel Barula. Thank and you, I, Daniel. And if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I am so sorry. But it's B-A-R-U-E-L-A. I'm assuming that's Barula or Barula. Uh, sounds close as I could possibly come up with myself. Daniel Barula, Barula, thank you very much for Screening Country. You won the poll. That is the name of this show. Welcome. Thank you for listening. So, Jason. So, Brendan. Every time we do one of these episodes, what are we going to do? We're going to talk about a movie on the BFI Top 100. We're not going in order, though. No. We're not going top to bottom. No, sir. We're not going bottom to top. That's not what we do. We're going in a random order. Random! Because... 
right. We have dice. We got the dice. And the dice will determine where we head next in our journey on the British Film Institute Top 100. So before we start talking about the movie that we... Because we had to decide a movie. We didn't... I'm not, Behind the scenes, lifting the curtain up. Do it, Brendan. We didn't roll the dice for the first one. No. We We... Actually, no. You know what? We, we used did. a random number generator, didn't we? We used a random number generator to determine the first uh, movie, which, of course, this is not suspenseful if you're reading the title of this episode. Um, but I just wanted to say before we get going, so uh, BFI Top 100 uh, was determined. I looked this up because I wanted to know how these movies were decided. Basically, they did a survey of a thousand... Uh, a thousand people who work in British film, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're directors, writers, actors, producers, whatever. All sorts of British people. Yes, and I think much like the AFI, they had a huge master list, which I do not have, and I am not watching all of those movies. None of those movies are worth watching that didn't make it to the top 100. <laughs> well, we'll, de- we'll, de- we'll debate that. I guess that. we'll determine that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's so, that's so basically that's how this list was determined. Um so that's, I guess that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna we're gonna decide if we think these movies deserve to be in the pantheon, and if they hold up, if they're still good movies. And I say still because you know we haven't seen like seventy five percent of them between the two of us. So <laughs> yeah, at least at the very least, <laughs> and we're quite knowledgeable going into this. We're very very knowledgeable. I assure you. So let's get started. What's so, our film, Brendan? So number. 27. 27. On the British Film Institute Top 100. By the way, guys, if you want to follow along, you can find that list very easily, Wikipedia, or on the British Film, uh, BFI.org.co.uk, maybe? <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. If you Google Just, British Film, it'll probably come up. If you search BFI Top 100, it's there. There's a Wikipedia page. So if you want to follow along, that's where it is. So number 27 on the list is David Lean's 1965 Russian Revolution epic, Dr. Zhivago. Blah, 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 blah. That is where we are starting. Yes, sir. Dr. Zhivago. Directed by David Lean. A movie, uh, what year was it? 1960? 1965. We are going to see... Just as a heads up, guys, we are going to see six David Lean movies on this list. Six out of a hundred. Now, I know David Lean is one of the more, obviously, well-known, famous, critically adored... uh, not just British film directors, just directors in general. Absolutely. I mean, Lawrence of Arabia is still to come. That's on the AFI list as well. Do you... Six out of a hundred, though. That's a lot. That is a lot of movies, but the man uh, is certainly known for making epic movies uh, and, and really putting it all up there on the screen. And uh, why do I sound like a sports announcer right now? He really puts it out there, out there on the screen, really gives it his all, and uh, we'll see how he does. There's a little bit of Trump in there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's a lot though. Like for someone to take that many spots on a top 100 list. Now, I mean, 
I mean, if you want to make a point of comparison, the AFI list, Steven Spielberg has five movies mm-hmm. on there. So we're giving him one more than Spielberg. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and, and especially for a director that, that most of these movies are a very specific genre in that they're the historical epic. They're usually about three hours long. They have a cast of thousands and amazing music and, and famous actors, uh, certainly. Uh, we'll get to see some Alec Guinness in many of these oh, movies. Alec Guinness, yeah, uh, I believe he's in seven of the movies <laughs> on the top 100. I mean, it's a little different for actors. Like, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think he's the lead in most of these movies. Not this one, but he is in the lead in most of them. Um, but directors, it just seems like it's six. Seems like a lot. But I mean, we'll get into them. We'll figure it out. See, maybe, maybe some of them, maybe some of them shouldn't be on here. Maybe. We'll find out. Yeah, well, that's it. We'll, well, we'll we'll talk about it. But Jason. Give us a little bit, just so people, people who haven't seen Dr. Zhivago, by the way, spoiler alert across the board for every single episode. If, if you haven't seen this movie since it's released in 1965, I suggest that you get to it. It, yeah. it. it is three hours and 20 minutes long, I'll give you that, it's a long slog, but you know what, it's a David Lean movie, so ultimately it's going to be worth it. And if you don't want to uh, watch and just want to hear, well then that's fine, but uh, we are going to spoil the entire movie. Yeah. So Jason, just a brief breakdown of what happens in Dr. Zhivago. Well, Dr. Zhivago is the story of, uh, of young Yuri Zhivago, who is, uh, uh, we learn at the beginning of the movie, is a young boy and his mother passes away. And uh, he is sent to live with the friends of his mother, uh, who have names, uh, but it doesn't really matter. Um, I think he lives with his mother's sister. And so he goes to live with them, and they raise him with with a stepsister named Tanya. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and skip ahead, he's in medical school, and his stepsister Tanya is coming back from uh, from away. Uh, I suppose school, if I remember correctly, it's it's hard to remember. This is a this is a big movie, and I've watched it over the course of a week because it's a real a real long movie. Um, so. She comes back, and like any good Russian uh, epic, uh, uh, these uh, erstwhile family members are encouraged to marry each other, uh, the stepsister Tanya and and Yuri, uh, by Alexander the father, who thinks that they would be a great pair, because, you know, they grew up together. So so we got that going on. That's one aspect that's going on. But then we've also got, and here we go, we're getting really deep into the meat of this movie. (laughs) We've got um, uh, 17-year-old Lara. Played by Julie Christie. Played by Julie Christie. She is a young, uh, a nubile young lady who, uh, I'm not sure if, now, you help me out here because I couldn't get this for sure, who has some desire to have access to higher society. I, okay, I think her mother does. Her mother does, certainly. uh, Through this man, Komarovsky. Victor Komarovsky. Played by Rod Steiger. uh, Steiger Doing a, doing a fantastic job, honestly, in my opinion. Um. But yeah, he's basically using her mother for sex, uh, but she's using that to kind of get ahead into high society. And I guess in this point in the movie, you see this sort of transition, and he's, he's starting to get more interested in Lara, yes. the daughter, who, is again, is 17. 17 years he's old. He's at yes. least like 40 years old. Oh, God. Uh, no. this, right. guy, this guy's got to be in his 50s. But then again, back then, when you're Russian and you're smoking a lot, he could be... Th- 28 for all we know. I, well, I think Rod Steiger himself was about 40 at the <laughs> okay, time. So right. I, I'm assuming he's about the same age as the character. Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, this is... And then he's uh, he's slowly making his moves on 17-year-old Lara. Slowly would be, I think, generous. Methodically? I think he pretty much just rapes her. 
uh, <laughs> well, at will. Yeah, uh, begins to and and takes advantage of her. But you know, I guess this trade, I don't know. And that's the thing. I don't want to put that in her head that that she was doing it for that. My 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 male mind, I suppose that's what came to mind. But either way, she is going to parties and stuff. Uh, now yes. I don't think that excuses the rape. Now here's the other thing that got me because she calls or she's referred to as uncle at some point, and I thought, oh Jesus, are we really going dark? This is like her uncle that's raping her. But I think that's a Russian thing. I think because she's a friend of his mother's that she's an uncle or he's an uncle. Yeah, see Possibly. that 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 to me, I think, yeah, it was just like an affectation because, yeah. well, I mean, let's let's, just, let's let's get the plot out of the way. All so right, well, so we're we got, working through this. We got here. Pasha, and then we got Pasha. Pasha is a young, uh, uh, determined political activist. He's very much a, a, a communist and is participating in peaceful demonstrations because, okay, you have to understand some historical uh, context for this era, Brendan, if I may. Yes, you may. Uh, this, this was in the era of the Russian Revolution. Now, the Russian Revolution was two separate revolutions that happened in 1917 that led to what we now would have known as the Soviet Union. So Russia was like a lot of places in Europe. It was, you know, where you have this autocratic monarchy running things and you've got this aristocratic class that kind of has all the money, and then you've got the peasants that do all the work and, and get none of the, you know, none of the fruits of their labor. And so Russia was, like, super autocratic. Like, the, the Tsar pretty much had free reign to run whenever he wanted. And in 1905, there was an attempt at a revolution that was swiftly crushed, but it led to a lot of reforms as far as, like, the, the Duma goes, the Russian parliament, and there was some more democratic representation there. But this all started to come to a head when World War One happened. Now the Russians were drawn into World War One. Now part of here's an interesting fact that you may not have noticed. There's a lot of French spoken in this movie, especially in the high society parties, and this was because Russia had a very deep cultural connection to France. They were allies, and Russian soft French and and French culture is like very something to be adored and imitated and, and used. So when World War One broke out and France was drawn into this conflict against Germany. Russia, of course, had to come in on the side of France and sent a lot of its young men out to fight the war. And initially, you know, like like a lot of the countries in that war, the morale was very high, but that quickly <laughs> that quickly dropped as the Russians, you know, didn't do so well against those Prussian-trained German soldiers on the Eastern Front. Um, so during that war, as the morale starts to go down, you start to have agitation at home. And a coalition of groups... Uh, comprising the Bolsheviks, whom you might know, uh, Vladimir Lenin, very communist, very Marxist, and then you've got the Mensheviks, which were kind of like aristocrats that were opposed to the uh, monarchy and bourgeois and all these different groups. They all came together and in February of 1917 overthrew the Russian government. Uh, and then months later, in October of 1917, and this is all on the Julian calendar, so feel free to adjust that depending on uh, what kind of calendar you use. In October 1917, the Bolsheviks said, fuck it, and uh, basically consolidated their power and took over and led to the situation that we are in in this movie. Um, so you've got a little bit of... Uh, so this revolution is, has happened, and um, during the first part of it... Pasha. Pasha. Oh, we're, we're talking, talking about, about Pasha. Pasha, right. So Pasha, Pasha eventually does join the military, but this is after Pasha's had his first like real kind of encounter with the political system, a, a peaceful march turns into a bloodbath as a number of, of dragoons uh, uh, with sabers attack a peaceful crowd uh, with swords and kill many of them and in, manage to injure Pasha with, his, with, with a saber and cause a very big scar on the side of his face. Pasha, you know, it, of course, is, is scared and, 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 and in disarray, but as he's leaving, he sees a pistol on the ground and he grabs that pistol and takes it with him and he goes to find Lara, his love interest, because he needs to be treated and he needs he just needs to get away from what's going on. 
So he shows up there. She treats his wound like the good woman that she is. Uh, and uh, he gives her the pistol and tells her to, to hide it. Because you never know. A pistol could come in handy later mm-hmm. in the movie. And with Chekhov's gun, we know it will. <laughs> and it's appropriate because Chekhov was Russian. So, where were we? All right. So so the handgun is out there. So when Lara's mom... So at some point, Lara's mom finds out that Victor has been taking liberties with her daughter. And and this was not clear to me until I read a summary later, but yeah. she attempts suicide. I did, yeah, I didn't catch that either. And, of course, this was the 1960s, so it was way less... You know, you weren't as able to just blatantly put that on screen, so they had to kind of like work around it. In doing so, Victor then brings his personal doctor and his personal doctor's former student, one Doctor Yuri Zhivago, poet and man of medicine, to help out. And so they take care of the uh, of the the mother. And while he's there, Yuri catches a glimpse for the first time of Lara, her blonde hair from the back. Uh, yeah. So, and that's the movie. No. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Three hours, ladies and gentlemen. Three hours. No, so after that, Victor finds out that Lara wants to marry Pasha, her her political boyfriend who has been, by this point, hardened a bit by his experience uh, at that protest. Um, And he tries to talk her out of it, and when she has no interest in not marrying Pasha, he says, fuck it, and rapes her again. Uh, But this is the last rape, because she's finally had enough. And what does she have in her possession, Brendan? The pistol. The pistol. Which she then takes and strides out purposefully into the night uh, and finds Victor at a high society party. You know how they did. You know how they do in Russia. High society party with aristocrats. We've all been to those on Christmas Eve. And he's sitting there smoking cigars and drinking whiskey and hanging out with his buddies. And she walks up to him and in the middle of a crowded room, pulls the pistol out and shoots him, I don't know, in like the arm? In the arm. Yeah. She, I think, not I, a good I, shot. I mean, I mean, realistic because... You think it's a, hard to a, fire. A, a car- well, and a character like Lara wouldn't know how to fire yeah, she a does, pistol. Yeah, she has no training in pistols. Why would she know how to fire she, a gun? And she's very, obviously very impulsive at that moment because, yeah. like, you know, she'd just been assaulted. And so, of course, there's a moment of silence and everybody's <coughs> shocked that this has happened and then pandemonium breaks out. And But but Victor is like, no, 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 there'll be no charge. I don't want her charge. And then Pasha, has, uh, who had put two and two together, shows up and escorts her away. Right. And uh, we'll Argu- just forget about this happening, I guess, uh, in the course of the war and revolution. Well, and arguably the first hour of this movie is more about Lara than it is about Yuri. Yeah, and no, absolutely. Yuri doesn't have all that much going on. We yeah. basically learn that he's a poet and he's a man of medicine, and there you go. So, let's see here. That's Where like the first hour of the movie. <laughs> yeah, and that's like the first hour of the movie. And so, anyways, after this happens, Pasha and, and Lara are married, and they do uh, sire a daughter. So, at this point, war breaks out. Pasha joins the fight and goes over to war and is reported missing. We see in a scene that he leads a charge because the the aristocratic officer calls for the charge and nobody moves. But Pasha, the the young worker, young uh, political protege, he gets everybody up and they charge and then it looks as if he dies. Yeah, it's it's implied, but we don't see anything. Right. Uh, So meanwhile, Yuri... Who has also joined up uh, to fight and uh, well, he's well, a, well to, to fight, but I mean to, to be a field to doctor. be a field doctor, yeah, yeah, yeah to help with the fight. Uh, he runs into Lara in the field because Lara has also entered the war as a nurse, and they uh, set up a field hospital together. And during the early months of 1917, run this field hospital. And when they're coming back, uh, they they uh, can see that the revolution is already starting to take place. Uh, that uh, officer, uh, you, you remember the scene, Brendan, where the where they're at the train track and the and the 
and the um, the soldiers come up, and then it turns into uh, a melee as they pull the officers down off their horses and just murder them there on the trail back to Moscow or wherever they're going. Oh yeah, yeah. But so so while they're there, this romance blossoms between Lara and uh, Yuri. But Yuri is a man of of honor, I guess, uh, at least in his head. So he doesn't pursue it any further because he respects his 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 now wife, his stepsister Tanya. Uh, and they have they. I'm not sure if it's before or after, but they do have a child together, a young lad uh, uh, named Sasha. Uh, oh, Yuri and his wife. Yuri and his wife. Tanya. Yes. yes. Um, uh, they had a the child before, but he's never met the child because he's away being a field doctor. Yes. Yes. At that point. So yeah. So then they eventually get both get sent home. Yeah. So uh, they get sent to, home to their separate to their separate places. Yeah. Uh, Yuri goes back to his house and finds that it has been seized by uh, communist authorities. And, and the house about is being eighteen hundred people living. Yeah, it sure feels like it. Where his house is being partitioned out for the uh, the masses, uh, as you would expect in a communist society. Now, this is right where the movie really, on one hand, starts to feel like anti-communist propaganda because these people are so serious and it seems so obvious. But it's also, you know, it's pretty much true. Like that's yeah, that's the I'm shit sure that not, did happen. They're not really stretching a lot. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not stretching very much at all. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, this this novel was obviously not popular. The, the novel this is based on was written by Boris Pasternak, who's a very famous Russian novelist. Yep. And uh, this this was banned in the Soviet Union. So obviously the Soviets were not particularly impressed with the portrayal of the revolution in this movie. But he gets back and he's not real happy about it. But, you know, they, they, they deal with it. And so at some point, he meet, he finally meets his brother, Igraf. Now, what we didn't mention and what we should have mentioned up front is that this movie is framed in a bookend mm-hmm. where the movie opens with Igraf uh, Zhivago, played by Alec Guinness. That's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. Of course I know him. He's me. He meets his brother Yigraf for the first time. Yigraf is a policeman. He's a member of what uh, of I think of the Cheka, which was at the time the secret police, which eventually would become what we knew as the KGB. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Yigraf warns him that his work now as a poet, his work has been kind of declared subversive. Yes. For reasons that, I mean, I don't know. They don't really read all the poems in the movie, so you don't know exactly. Any. Or any of them. Yeah, any they, of them. They're, not they're a single named. one. They're named, certainly, but they're not um, delved into. But they're apparently subversive. And so Igraf wants him, you know, to get out. And so he furnishes him with some paperwork to get out. And they head toward an estate that I believe belonged to the, was it Alexander's family? The, the father-in-law? Or yeah. The well, he meets up with, uh, yeah, something like that, I think, yeah. Yeah, so they, they head toward the Earl Mountains, and they're warned that, you know, there's there's a civil war going on at this point. The the Red Guard, the communist forces, are fighting the white forces, the pro-imperialist, anti-communist forces. And as they go through on, as, as they take their train ride, they, at one point, the door is opened, and they see the burnt farms. And uh, uh, just devastation that has happened because of this civil war. And it is attributed to one man, Strelnikov. The hard communist general who has no mercy and is fighting the whites at every opportunity. So they, uh, so they, they get there. They they uh, go to their uh, uh, the estate, the house. It's locked up. It's been seized by the communist authorities, but the cottage is still open. So they set up in the cottage, and we have a number of scenes of you know Yuri living life. Well, and don't forget the uh, the big reveal here. Stronikov is. Pasha. Yes, this this comes up while he's living there. He wanders off and is accosted by communist forces uh, when he kind of wanders into Strelnikov's train, which is coming by, or it's yeah. stopped. And he's brought in, and there is Pasha, looking hard as fuck! 
just just all the all like any sort of youthful idealism is drawn out of his face and yep. he is nothing but the husk of a man who is determined to destroy the the anti-revolutionary forces that are at hand and they have a, they have a chat uh, and uh, Pasha eventually informs Yuri that, that Lara is living in a nearby town that is controlled by white forces. Um, and after their, their rather tense conversation, uh, Yuri is let go, which as... And then they go to the cottage. Based, based on what we've seen, uh, uh, we know that this is not usual, that anybody who has this kind of conversation with Strolnikov would be leave alive. Yeah, well, they say, like, anybody... Usually these interviews end with Strolnikov murdering them or yeah. executing them. Yeah. Absolutely. And and actually, I think that might be the last time we actually see Pasha. Uh, and that's the and that's, by the way, that's pretty much where the intermission hits. <laughs> yeah, that's right around where the intermission hits. Yeah. So they're living on the farm. They you know they go through winter and summer and they run around in the grass and they farm and they're having an idyllic life in the mountains and not being bothered. I mean, the, yeah, I mean the rest of it's pretty like pretty quick yeah there's uh, when you think of david lean films and we'll get to them when we talk about them but a movie like bridge of the river kwai and, and lawrence of arabia certainly had these big battles that are climaxes and everything and this is not that sort of movie it's no. a different type of movie so so i mean he we, has his he pretty much he has his affair here with with laura yeah so he's so he, so he starts going to that town mm-hmm. ostensibly to go to the library but when he goes to the library he does meet her there and then they pretty much immediately start fucking. Like it's like there's barely any resistance. She like invites him back to the house, and he's I think inside her within like ten minutes of being there. Like, <laughs> he's basically like, "Where's your daughter? She's she's uh she's at school. All oh, right, great. phone zone. All right, here we go now." And so now he begins a pr- a pattern of like so many cheating husbands of uh, uh oh I'm going down to town. Got to go to the library and get some disinfectant. Uh, they don't have disinfectant library. Whatever. Have a great day, honey. Like that's basically what it's working out. To. Oh yeah. Well, and at this point, he finds out his wife Tanya is as uh, pregnant she with is another pregnant child with yet another child. And he decides to break it off with Laura. But I mean. Does he really? Like, he, he decides to. Laura doesn't believe him, though. Yeah. Um, and then he, he tells her that he never loved her. Yeah. She doesn't believe him. No, of course not. Because, she, well, it's clear he did love and her. And then we get a weird part of the movie where he gets captured by yes. uh, a, a, a communist and then And I wonder, if this is one of these things that I always think about, like, in the transition from the novel, that it's like, that in the novel this might be a more detailed section with more scenes to it, but yeah. in the movie they kind of, like cram a whole lot of stuff into one two small... Years. Yeah, two years worth of stuff into one small segment. Yeah. So he gets abducted by the Red Guard forces and is forcibly conscripted into being a medical officer, which, you know, at the time, you're a doctor, they need a doctor, yeah, they're gonna fucking conscript you. Guys, he's literally riding his horse and just gets ambushed yeah. and brought into the army. Yeah, he's just thrown in there. And so he does that for two years and then finally uh, gets up the gumption to desert. Now, yep. deserting, of course, is a crime punishable by death at this time in most militaries and certainly a bad crime today even so he wanders like like odysseus trying to get home he wanders and he eventually now i was concerned at the time i thought this was going to be some sort of hallucination yeah like that he was just like hallucinating that he got back there but no he actually somehow manages to make it back to this town to lara to lara and she nurses him back to health and while and as she nurses him back to health she she hands him a letter from his wife that says the wife, the child, and her father-in-law had been... They were going to be deported as, uh, I I assume, because they don't agree with the regime and that they were going to set up in Paris and so that's where they were going to be. Yeah, and I I think in this letter too we kind of get the idea that Tanya gets that there's an affair going on. Yeah. Because she... She met Lara yeah. off screen. A lot of stuff happens off screen. Well, yeah. I'll save that for after. Right. Yeah, anyway, go ahead. So uh, this is based, this is re- really 
pretty much the, the so, end of the movie here. So what's what's a Yuri to do? He loads up his new mistress yeah. and and her daughter, and they go back. Where do they go? They go back to the same uh, place that they had been living before, up in the Ural Mountains. And but they set up in the main house this time because they're real fucking fancy. And this is where he writes his poetry. And this is where he writes his poetry. And he writes his most famous poem, Brendan. His most famous poem, which is called Lara. Lara. And he gets a visit from Komarovsky. Rod Steiger comes back into the movie and says, "Listen, we got to get out of the country." Wait, 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 wait. was this? Bef- this I think was. Well, before he does this before, he but he gets blown yeah. off. Yeah, he gets blown off. He comes drunk and wants. He's like, "I want to help you," and they're like, uh, "Fuck you, you which, rapist fuck." I mean, yeah, that's a, the n- normal response. Like he literally turfs like him out the door, like he's a drunk at a bar. Like <laughs> just get the fuck out of here and tosses him down the. Oh yeah, literally like, collar, collar, yeah, collar and tail, like just whoop. <laughs> get out and stay out. So they so they go back so they go to the country. He writes Lara. He's just writing like a motherfucker because that's what he does. He's a poet uh, in addition to being a medical doctor, um, and l- like our own John McRae from World War One. Um, but so then yes, so then Komarov shows up again and says, "Okay, so here's the deal. Stralnikov, remember him? He's dead now. He dead committed as, suicide." As as Brent of the Home Video Hustle would say, dead, "He's dead as fuck. He is dead as fuck." So turns out that they had been uh, the Cheka had been watching Lara mm-hmm. and were only letting her live because they wanted to draw out Strelnikov. Because but, again, guys, that is her husband. That is her husband. Because of course, Strelnikov, whatever the political winds had been, they had turned against him, and uh, he had been surrounded and committed suicide. And so now that he was no longer in the picture, Lara was in danger of being killed herself. And so right. Komarovsky is like, "Come with me. I'll take you with me out to the Far East Republic, where we'll set up and we'll be all fun with all the whites." And uh, and we should note right now. We said whites a lot. Whites, we mean white the Russians. white, white, white Russian guard. The, not, the, the white Russians were the were the pro imperial. Yeah, uh, not Russians. not white people. Not white just people. If anyone's listening, I mean, to confused. be fair, most of them were probably white people. But that's yeah, not yeah, really yeah. In place. It's just like we're gonna hang out with all the so, whites. So so Yuri's like, sure, well, yeah, we'll go. And then they're like, well, you come, and he's like, ah, I'm gonna get the other sledge. And he's like, yeah, but you're coming with us, right? He's like, God, don't worry about me. I got the other sledge. And so they take off, and he doesn't go with them. He goes back to Moscow, and we later learn that uh, that uh, Egrev, his brother, played by Alec Guinness, that's a name he's not had in a long time, uh, he finds him, and uh, I gave him a new suit and a job, and so gets him back to working in society. And then a few years later, when his hair is gray... Uh, he's uh, very sick. He's very sick. But he's riding on the tram, coming back from work, and he sees a woman walking along, and he knows it's Lara. He sees her face, and he tries to get off the train, but he can't, and she's walking along, and he tries to get off the train, and finally he gets off the train, but something's hurting. He, his, his chest, he can't speak. He gets off the tram, he runs out into the street, and then immediately collapses onto the ground and is surrounded by people as she walks away into the distance and doesn't even see him. Dead as fuck. Yuri dies right Yuri there. Yuri dies the right there. And so then we go back to, to General Zhivago now. Now General Zhivago in the KGB. Yeah, which is, the whole point of this the whole point of this framing device mm. is that he thinks that this girl that he's talking to in the in one of the labor camps, I'm assuming. Yeah, where they're, they're building they're, a they're dam. They're building a dam. Yeah. He um uh uh Yevgrif, uh thinks that this girl may be Lara and Yuri's daughter. Yes. Because Lara does say we, we kinda glazed over it because this movie is very long it's very long <laughs> we kind of glazed over it but you but uh lara does say as she's on the tr- uh, train with kamarovsky uh fleeing russia that she does have she's carrying yuri's child yes so there is a child yes. that she ends up losing at some point uh through and by losing we don't mean that she had a miscarriage no we mean no, she no physically loses the kid yeah when when the kid is like eight or something yes um in a crowd 
And you get a little bit, before we get to the back to the framing device, you get a little bit of Yevgrav helping Lara kind of look for the kid. Yep. Um, to no success. Yep. And then uh, it's just very dismissive, like, I don't know what happened to Lara after I don't that. know what happened to her. She probably died in a work camp or something. Like yeah, that. that's, that's, that's basically what it was. That's that character's end. But but to be fair, like, like at that time, that literally was how so many people would have thought of their relatives, because they literally had no idea what happened to them. Yeah. And they probably died in a gulag somewhere. So back to the interview. Yeah. Uh, that... Yevgrev is hel- having with uh, young Tanya. Mm-hmm. Not, okay. Not now. Tanya. Yeah. Ta- or she's Tanya. She's Tanya. Tanya is Yuri's original cousin fucking slash Russians wife. Russians in their names, man. Yeah. Weird they didn't just come up with a different name. That's uh, uh, Russian for the story. story. But anyway, Tanya was Yuri's, like, original cousin slash wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tanya is the girl that Yevgrev thinks may be Yuri and Lara's daughter. Yeah. So back to that interview, um, they're still not sure. Yeah. But uh, she gets she gets taken away. I think that's like her boyfriend or something. Yeah, her like her like, her, like her dude. They're like walking away. Year old boyfriend. And as she turns to walk away, he sees on her back the an, an instrument that which is very we similar. didn't talk about didn't because talk this about movie is three hours long. Three hours long. So so it, it, in the the sled and rosebud kind of way at the beginning of the movie, Yuri is given his mother's uh, balalaka, balalaka, balalaka or whatever. or whatever it's called. It's like a, it looks like a little triangle guitar. And so that he kind of carries that through him with the movie, and then when Lara goes away, he gives it to her to take with her. Right. So at the end of the movie, as Tanya is leaving, she turns around and uh, is walking away, and and General uh, Zhivago sees the uh, oh, Yevgrav. Let's not confuse the people. Yevgrav, <laughs> not Doctor Zhivago, General Zhivago. Yevgrav sees uh, sees the instrument on her back and That's goes, an "Instrument I haven't seen in many years." Yeah, it's an instrument I've not seen in a long time. <laughs> no, she he says something like, uh, "Oh, when did she learn to play that?" And he goes, and the guy's like, "She didn't learn to play. She's an artist." And he goes, "Oh, an artist. It's a gift then." And that's when the movie ends. Credits. That's the last line. It's a gift. Finn. I, and I say credits, but there are no credits because all the credits are at the beginning. At the beginning, because it's that time. Uh, <laughs> just get them out front. So, Holy shit, Jason. That was the plot of Dr. Zhivago. Normally, I don't think this segment is going to take as long, but this is a long This is a long-ass movie. movie, yeah. So, I mean, I want to get a little bit into the background of the movie. You mentioned Boris Pasternak. Yep. Uh, so this Russian man named Boris Pasternak writes this book in 1957 called Dr. Zhivago. Very controversial. Uh, in fact, he writes it in the Soviet Union, and it's so controversial that he needs to smuggle the book out of the country and uh, by a trusted Italian friend named D'Angelo to deliver the book to a left-wing Italian publisher uh, who published the book soon afterwards. It's obviously a huge sensation uh, outside of the non-communist world because the Soviet Union wants nothing to do mm-hmm. with this book. Uh, was a bestseller. Spent 26 weeks on top of the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, that's Mick Foley levels right there. That's, that's, yes, that's, Mick Foley, exactly. Yes. Uh, book Have pissed nice off day. the Soviet Union so much it wasn't even available there until 1988 under Mikhail Gorbachev. During the Glasnost period, the Perestroika, the opening. So, uh, so Pasternak was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1958 uh, for poetry, <laughs> which which but, made the which made the award anti-Soviet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing: he was awarded for his poetry. Yeah. But most people saw it as this is just their way of awarding him for Doctor Zhivago. It's, it's like when they give a lifetime achievement award to an actor who never got a, like an actual Oscar. It's kind of like well, it's also kind of like no offense to The Departed, which I love that movie, but it's kind of like Martin Scorsese winning Best Director for The Departed yeah. when he's been snubbed so many other yeah. times. You know what I mean? Exactly. Uh, however, Pasternak declines to accept this because uh, he's he's being 
he's being targeted by the Soviet government. They see it as a hostile gesture towards them uh, to award him for this. You so know your government's insecure when they're mad about a fucking book. <laughs> so so that happens. So then David Lean, director David Lean. Oh yes, David Lean. Uh, who, again, we'll see many, many times on this list. Yes. Uh, writes up a treatment for a film adaptation of this novel. And uh, basically, producer there's a producer named Carlo Ponti. Uh, was interested in using this source material, so this book, as a star vehicle for his wife, Sophia Loren, after the huge success of Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only caveat is that they couldn't film in Russia because of the book being banned there. And as most of the film, most of this movie about Russia, about the Russian Revolution, is shot in Spain, which is pretty funny. Is, is Sophia Loren... I think Sophia Loren's still alive, and she's still pretty damn good-looking for a woman who's probably in her 80s. I think she's still alive and even if she's dead i bet you she still looks fabulous <laughs> she's just that kind of woman she's just the sexiest pile of ashes That's you'll, right. ever you'll ever see <laughs> so uh one thing i wanted to mention too this is a little bit more specific to the movie but in the protesting scene while the, the crowds are chanting in the yeah. streets again this was in uh spain spain yes at the time they filmed this at the time of generalissimo francisco franco oh, one of the <laughs> oh not, no <laughs> not so popular the, you know, the the fascist uh, dictator of Spain and there's a communist protest going on in the street. <laughs> right. So not aware that this was... Some people not aware that this was a movie thought he had been overthrown. Oh no. So in many of these scenes, there are real people in the scenes protesting, shouting, uh, the um, uh, singing like, so- like revolutionary songs, but once actual Spanish... Uh, police force started arriving on the scene uh, they started pretending like they didn't know the words <laughs> so it was like no no, no we're, we're just we're just the actors we're just the actors <laughs> but they really thought they were like oh Franco's been overthrown are you sure Stanley Kubrick didn't direct this movie because that sounds like something he might have done <laughs> like, yeah the revolution happened guys so Dr. Zhivago Jason yes 1965 yep. number 27 on the list mm-hmm. uh this is one of the films that was on the American Film Institute top 100 list in 1998, was taken off in mm-hmm. 2007. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. It's uh, Lawrence of Arabia is still on the list. Mm-hmm. Bridge on the River Kwai is still Absolutely. on the list. Dr. Zhivago taken off. Yeah. Now, because th- th- that's the thing, Dr. Zhivago, like if you, and we will talk about Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia at length, no doubt, when we do those episodes, but uh, it's not like... Like I said, the, where those movies were very much about war, and and they had these climaxes to them, these like strong action climaxes. You know, whether it's the uh, the the attack on the Turkish fort in Lawrence of Arabia, or the actual like the, the the end of the bridge and the bridge on the River Kwai, like those are some some big scenes. This movie doesn't have that. This movie is very much a story of Yuri Zhivago and his his romance with with Lara, and it doesn't lend itself to to that similar kind of. I guess epicness. Now, this is a very epic movie. There's some amazingly large, awesome scenes in this movie. Much the better than scenes. much better than epic movie, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Don't even get me started on those guys. <laughs> but um, yeah, like, like the 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 protest scenes that the, where they're all waiting for the train to come, and there's all those people, and the train comes in, and everybody like stands up, and they got their flags, and they're all rushing to get on the train. Or they're there's even a very brief charge in the woods where. I think it's when when after Zhivago gets abducted by the, uh, yeah. the Red Guard, they they People charge sh- across a frozen lake yes. against a bunch of machine guns, and that only lasts for like fifteen seconds. But it's one of the most like epic kind of battle things in the movie. It's really cool. Uh, but yeah, this movie is very much a romance. Okay, well, and like you mentioned that, 
And can I tell you what this movie really reminds me of? What does this movie remind this you? This movie reminds me of a modern, a more, a much more modern film. Yeah. And I don't know. Maybe this clip will help you uh, think about what this movie may remind me of. This I don't movie reminds me of Titanic. I, I don't think that's from the movie. <laughs> no, no, but that, that's from Titanic. This yes. movie reminds me of Titanic it, a it, lot. It kind of does have that vibe to it, where it, it is, you know, it, it's it's romance, and it, but it is set against the background of this epic kind of happening, the but Russian it, Revolution or the sinking of this dumb boat. Like, either of those things are very the, epic. And the reason it really reminds me of that, besides that, like, yeah, it, like yes, a historical uh, events going on in the background, Wait. it really puts that stuff in the background. Did we see Julie Christie's boobs and I wasn't and I didn't notice? Well, no, we haven't done Don't Look Now. Okay, yet. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> uh, no, but like that stuff is very much like in the background. But it's like it. it I mean, I guess it's more prominent. No, no. To me, it's about as prominent as the Titanic sinking yeah. in Titanic, and it's also one of those movies that got a lot of criticism for over romanticizing yeah. uh, that era. Yeah. Uh, you have two fictional characters mm-hmm. at that at the height of it. Actually, I'm pretty sure everybody's character in this movie is a fictional character so, except yeah. for like you know people who are never seen like Lennon and yeah, yeah. all those guys um even David Lean had a reputation similar to James Cameron of being like sort of a tyrant I mean I think James Cameron was probably like a nicer person mm. but David Lean had this thing where actors were well I mean I have a clip I'll play later but David Lean had a very narrow way of looking at actors mm. uh very perfectionist yeah. James Cameron very much the same thing and it was both movies were kind of hated at the time. Yeah, huh. it's just like it feels like there's some parallels. Yeah, I, there. and I don't know that this is this is definitely not a movie worthy of hate. I mean, it is on the British. It's 27 on the British Film Institute's top 100 films of British filmdom. Oh, I'm aware. Now yeah. it's yeah. it's critical critically praised, but at yeah. the time it was not. Yeah, and then and again comparing it to those earlier films, you know, uh, Kwai and, and Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, I mean it's it's not that. It's it, it's it's like how so often directors will make a follow up movie that just doesn't capture the same spirit as the previous one did, and maybe is going for something different. But then those hardcore fans are like, Yeah, this isn't what I wanted. I wanted ACDC. I want a consistent song that sounds the same every time. So you're saying there were like uh, there were like Last Jedi fans of the La- day, uh, yes, <laughs> fans, quote unquote. Well, fans, yeah, Star Wars fans that got no shit. Um, so I want to go through like I've got some things on the movie here, like kind of throughout. So I mean, I don't know if we'll see this again. I feel like we will because there's a few longer movies on this mm-hmm. list. So overtures, yes, movies. So I this movie begins with uh, five or six minutes yep. of just, and I think. Every theme that you'll hear in the movie is sampled during this overture. That's what an overture is, Brendan. What do you think? What, 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 now, did you? Did you? Thank you. <laughs> did you? Uh, did you watch the whole? Th- did you watch the overture? Did you yep. not fast forward? No, I let it. I, well, I, uh, no, I didn't. Because I, I was trying to. Yeah, I ended up skipping a bit of it. But it, <laughs> it, generally, yes, an overture is is taking you through the various musical themes of the movie. And if nothing else, I wonder sometimes if it was just a vehicle to sell the soundtrack up front to be like, "Oh, you're gonna. Hey, this is what you're in for, kids." Well, <laughs> this kind it's of music. almost like I heard it's also like a like a road show thing too. Yeah, like when they would take this movie on the road, a lot of times these big long movies like uh, like even like comedies, like it's a mad, 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 mad world. They'd have these overtures and intermissions to kind of just. Uh, Sometimes people would put their own music. They'd have a live orchestra and stuff. like. It's like sometimes I want to take a shit in the middle of the movie, but I don't want to miss anything. So that's what overtures are great for. <laughs> oh, you mean intermissions? Well, yes. Well, no, I, I take a shit during the overture and then during the intermission. So too. a shit right at the beginning right and at the, beginning, in the middle. And right at the middle, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Do you think it's kind of a hard sell nowadays to get people to not fast forward through this? Like uh, the modern yeah. Well, I mean, to, to be f- yeah, uh, yeah. That's the thing. Like, how often do people just want to sit there for five minutes listening to music before a movie starts, even a long one like this one? You know, it's like look, I, it's a very antiquated thing. Mime is money, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and and so right off the bat, I just want to say too. So that's before the MGM logo even yeah. appears on the screen. Uh, but it's beautiful music, and and as I've said before, like any David Lean film, you cannot go wrong with the soundtrack. Did you know that it's... David Lean hated it? Did he? He, so the, the song that we played when we mentioned Do- we were doing Dr. Zhivago, that's uh, called Lara's Theme. Um, I guess I'll just say this now. So David Lean told the man that did the score, and I have his name, so just give me one second here. So uh, Maurice Jarre, or Jarre, or okay. Yare. He's a French guy, or <laughs> yeah. a Belgian dude. Yeah, so he, he basically had a lot of trouble coming up with uh, the theme and he submitted suggestion after suggestion after suggestion and they were pretty much all rejected by David Lean. Like, I don't quite like that music. Um, so David Lean said in the most British thing possible, he said, listen, um, take the weekend off with your girlfriend, uh, go go hole yourself up in a cabin and make love. So, Oh, David Lean was a chimney sweep. <laughs> hey, go hole up with your girlfriend. And go make a little bit of love. Go, Cameron, and make a little bit of love. With a little bit of love, you'll make this movie. So he tells him to take a, like a whole romantic getaway with his wife. And then Yare comes back and writes Lara's theme, uh, which was approved. But then I heard that David Lean later said he hated it. He thought it was overly sappy and uh, and and not not good like i, I guess... get that but it's also iconic like it's it's it like lawrence of arabia's theme like birds and river choirs colonel bogey marsh like it is inextricably separated inseparable from the movie because you hear that theme and it's like oh yeah it's dr Giovanni. and david lee clearly has like an, a real affection for the source material because even from the beginning uh the way it's credited is very strange it says david lean's film of dr Zhivago from the novel by Boris Pasternak. He's making it clear right away. This is not his work. Yeah. He is adapting this work. Uh, Boris Pasternak is like the second person credited. Mm-hmm. You don't see that very often when no. someone something is based on a novel or a play. No, I don't think I think Stephanie Meyer's credit for the Twilight movies is like seven or eight deep like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen. And it. I mean, guys, if you didn't think we were going to mention Twilight on the Doctor Chicago <laughs> episode, you were wrong. You're wrong. I love. Okay, I'll, I'll talk about something that I really love here. So, starting out with Al Guinness uh, telling this girl story of Doctor Zhivago because this mm. is the framing device. He's basically telling us the entire movie. How does he know everything? Yeah, because he wasn't there for most of it. He wasn't there but, most of but it. But also, you could say that maybe Lara told him stuff. Well, here's the thing, though, and this is the, this is the impression I get because especially at the point where they mentioned that the Cheka was watching them, he was watching them. I oh. think throughout the most of the movie, he has been there somewhere, keeping an eye on them. But there because is he's some, a policeman. There are some very intimate scenes that yes. I don't think he would know about. And and he may very well be an unreliable narrator, and perhaps he was filling in his own blanks. Because you'll notice too, and this is an interesting thing I noticed that any time he appeared in Zhivago's story. He never spoke. All you heard, you would see right. him speaking, but it was it was done over by the narration of him telling the story. So it almost is like is reinforcing. That true? Does yeah, he never it, actually like he, when he's in the wraparounds. That's he's true. speaking, but when he's in the movie and he starts talking to them, anytime he starts to speak, it is overrode by the narration of him explaining what's going on. And I don't know if that's an intentional like maybe nod to to like his perspective is what is coloring this story mm-hmm. that he's the one that is shaping it. Uh, and maybe it's a comment on how the Soviet government would, would maybe do its own propaganda and kind of shape the story. But I thought that was an interesting thing to notice uh, and, for me. And also, like, when he's telling um, when he's telling this story, I got to say, 
don't tell a 14 year old about the time like her potential parents had sex <laughs> like oh it was glorious they were in they were in her apartment in the town and, and then he co- showed up and within 10 minutes his bone was in and don't forget Komarovsky raped her earlier yes. let me tell you about that yes uh, that, that was that was not as hot as you would expect <laughs> So, yeah, that that's one of my biggest things, is yes. like, I don't know how he would know all that. I mean, I guess you could say also that, like, Laura might have told him all this stuff, or, like, Yuri might have told him all this stuff. But, again, that's not 100% reliable mm. either. Mm. Think about that. Like, yeah. maybe the reason that it's so over-romanticized is this is his version of the Yes, of the he's, he's creating his own narrative of it, and it's this, it's this ideal story. Because as humans, we're storytellers, and in any situation like that, you know, a person's telling someone else's story, you're not just going to sit there and recite the facts, you're going to tell the fucking story. Right. Whatever that is in your head, um, from your perspective. It's a beautifully shot movie. Oh, man. Yeah. I will not deny that for a second. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's David Lean. You David... can't go wrong with these scenes, these just massive scenes with massive amounts of people and beautiful shots of, like, the Earl Mountains and everything. Like, it's all so cool. Uh, what David Lean does really well, I find, is make you wait yeah. for things to come up. Because, like, even from right from the get-go, when you see young Yuri, who, by the way, is played by Omar Sharif's son. Yes. By the way, sorry to interrupt you, but we have to acknowledge Omar Sharif. I love Omar Sharif, and he's in a great uh, number of David Lean movies, and, and he's the world's foremost bridge player. If you want to play uh, well, uh, Omar Sharif's bridge, be sure to get it. It's available, DOS 6.22 on your PC. Enjoy it very much. Uh, he's great in this movie. I mean, and it's weird. He's a weird choice because he's an Egyptian dude. They get to play a Russian dude. But you know what? David Lean has browned up plenty of white actors in his day, so why not take a brown actor and make him play a white guy? Finally. Well, well and did, but however, did you know that they made him tape his eyes back? Did they really? So, I did not know that. In several scenes, Omar Sharif has, I feel like Omar Sharif has like almost cartoonish like puppy eyes mm-hmm. at times. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, let's just talk about it. The scene where the, the we talked about the protesters yeah. are where getting attacked. Where he starts attacked, to cry? You see it all in his eyes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And his eyes are so wide. And mm-hmm. apparently they taped his eyes, like they put, I mean, I'm doing visual right now yeah. on a podcast, but they taped his eyes back at the top of his head to make them like, to make him look, this is what it says, less less Middle Eastern. I mean, I mean, this is 1965. I mean, it's to be expected yeah. stuff like this would happen. And that's funny because I didn't notice that because I was too busy staring at this man's jaw. Omar Sharif has one of the best jaws in movies. He's just got this huge square jaw and just this, this something about him. You just want to be friends with him. He, here's another thing. He also had his hair straightened to yeah. disguise his, quote, Egy- Egyptian, not his Middle ethnicity. Eastern, sorry. Oh, his I say, surely you can look less Egyptian in this film, uh, uh, Omar. He, uh, he also had his hairline shaved up about two to three inches and his skin waxed, a process which had to be repeated every three days. That's gotta hurt. Um, he also shaved off his all his hair as it looked, this is where this is where <laughs> they said it looked, quote unquote, too Middle Eastern. Too, he's too ethnic. He's and too he swarthy. Wore, and he wore a wig to play uh, Javad. Oh, did he? Yeah, he did. See, because he always had lovely hair. Like, I, I always thought Omar Sharif like had hair until he died. Like, he always seemed to have like a really nice coif. So yeah, that's it's uh, that's one kind of a little bit unfortunate. There's other things too. There's another thing too um, in the in the scene where Lara uh, slaps Rod Steiger, which yeah. we didn't really talk about that a whole lot. But yeah. Rod Steiger, Komarovsky, she slaps him and he slaps her back. Yeah, uh, not planned. No, really. Uh, when he slapped her Ooh. back, <laughs> she did not expect it. So her reaction is genuine. Wow. Also, when they, when he kisses her, yeah, he actually stuck his tongue in her mouth, not like unknowingly to her, which. 
That that's a that lot. was purely for performance. Yeah, right? yeah, okay. Purely to get a reaction. <laughs> that is a, that is an unfortunate line. Hashtag would, me too. Yeah, no kidding. Rod Steiger. Things have changed a lot in the over the years. <laughs> um, but yeah, and well, now that now that I kind of mentioned that, let's talk about maybe we should talk about Rod Steiger in this movie. You, my dear, are a slut. Is he, what he says. And it's like, no, you've been raping me. That makes me a slut. You've been raping me for however long. Like Rod Steiger in this movie, I think he might be I think he might be my favorite part. I'm not saying I'm not saying, I, I'm not saying hold on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying I like his character, <laughs> but I'm saying as a performance. No, it is a great performance. He is very good in this movie. And I never for once for one second doubted that he wasn't Russian. Yeah. That was another thing too. He's not like, oh, I'm Komorovsky. Yeah, he's not doing Wodka. a bad guy. Yeah, um, he is great. I got to give credit to the actor whose name I forget that plays Pasha. I thought I, you were gonna say <laughs> the actor plays Komorovsky. It's like I just said, Rod. I just Steiger said it was Rod five Steiger. times. Uh, Tom, uh, Tom, Tom Courtney. Tom Courtney. Yeah, he who is, will show up again. I I enjoy him. I enjoyed the performance very much, and, and you know it, it is. It, it is an, a realistic like arc for a political revolutionary like that. You start off very idealistic, and then you get into it, and you get more cynical and more bitter. Until he, when he's on the train, he says like he is to the point where he's like, "There is no more private life." Like the ultimate like extreme end of communism. He's already there. There is no more private life. Well, and it's funny you mentioned Tom Courtney as like one of your favorite people in this movie because he's the only actor that was nominated for an Oscar. For this oh, really? Movie. I Only did not one. know that. Best Supporting Actor nomination. Didn't win, but none of the other actors, Omar Sharif, Julie Christie, mm. Rod Steiger, Al Guinness, none of them nominated. Hmm. I want to mention a bit more about Kamarovsky. He is a kind of guy, now I've got a little clip here to play. Um, so we talked about the protesters. Mm-hmm. So before they get attacked, they're kind of just protesting outside the window, and we see Kamarovsky having dinner with uh, Lara. Mm-hmm. And he shuts them down. Like, everybody's paying attention to the protesters singing. He shuts them down with one comment. They're singing June after the revolution. Very good. And just totally, totally just knocks the wind out of their sails. With one comment. And I think that's just such an interesting way to show his power. Rather than having him be like marching in and be like, Oh, I'm, you know, I've got ties to this person and yeah. I've got ties to this. They never really succinctly say why he's powerful. But just scenes like that, it's just like, and it just re- reinforces kind of the, the the condescending attitude of a lot of people toward peasants and toward you know the the lower classes in that society of just like you know like maybe those I can do next time Blah, let's all go back to drinking and jerking off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just he's he's oh he's so intimidating. Even when he first sees Lara in the movie, he puts a veil over her face. Mm. Isn't that kind of like? And then she quickly like she slowly takes it off. It's almost like he's trying to imprison her like right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, which he ends up basically doing later yeah. in the movie. 
uh, so, okay, you talk about Tom Courtney. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice how he's kind of idealistic at the beginning yeah. of the movie? He's not so like he, extreme. He, he's very much like the academic type of communist that you might even see in a university today. Like right. the, the he's very much Marxist, and is like you get the sense that he's young and is like, yeah, we can really change the world, you know, if we all just get together and peacefully protest. Did you notice so before the protest scene, before he gets attacked? As soon as the scene begins where he goes to Lara afterwards, hmm. do you notice how differently he's he's lit? Oh, they, oh, they changed the lighting on him. Well, he's very, like... I don't want to say, like, it's bright, but he's lit very, like, you know, very normally before that. Mm-hmm. But then once that scene happens where he asks Lara to hide the pistol, he's lit in shadow for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Almost the entire rest of the movie. Except for the scene where he's talking with Yuri. Yeah, but, but at that point... That like, wouldn't his, have made sense. His performance is just so, like, he's just... He, it, nothing it's, it's a just, very yeah it's there's a, no emotion left there there's only like the party and, and the objective well it's a signifier that he's gone dark like he's yeah. gone he's he's uh, uh, twisted did you notice some of the the, the William Shatner uh, uh, light highlights on people's eyes I noticed Lara got that a couple times the, the Shatner like just face lit up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shatner watched Dr. Zhivago and he was yeah. like that's what I that's want that's what I to. want that's give me that Gene what I want to do um, I wrote down the line. I I'm, I'm not usually gonna point out lines like this, but I just wrote down this line because it made me laugh. Because when so we talked about the Lara's mother t- attempting suicide, yeah. and the doctor and and Yuri going over to treat her. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the the doctor says to Yuri to calm him down. He's like, "Don't worry, I have the poor bitch in hospital tonight." <laughs> it's very like it's just a funny thing it's, to like. It's, it's very bro, but also like very doctor. It's Doctor Bro. <laughs> doctor Bro. Doctor Bro. Come in this fall on NBC. Doctor Bro. Don't worry, mate. I'll get your bitch to the hospital and we'll treat her properly. <gasps> oh, see, Doctor Bro sounds to me like someone just like, uh, oh, you got a freaking wound in your leg. <laughs> All right, come on. Come on. <laughs> Have this shot. <laughs> we'll take care of you. How, what did you think of like Lara refusing to call Komarovsky anything but Mister Kamara- Monsieur Komarovsky? I like that. I was, like uh, that she could. She would. Yeah, she wouldn't call him Victor. She wouldn't give him that satisfaction of that kind of personal connection. Yeah, it was like it was almost like he was like um, I, he wanted her to call him Victor. Yeah, because he wanted it to be more like uh, a closer relationship. Yeah. And she's trying to basically keep him at a distance, even yeah. though they're having an affair. Which okay, I gotta I gotta ask you. Yeah. So. Does she go into this complicitly? Like that's she... that's the question that I wasn't really sure of because it it clearly seems to me like they they want us to know that she is that he is raping her and that obviously regardless of what happens is wrong. definitely definitely later but is on. she is she using this as a way to trade like access like like essentially letting letting him rape her in this in in I guess trade for her going to these parties I don't know and I mean we're not condoning his no. her, his actions by any means and, I'm, and I, I literally don't know if that is the implication that the movie's trying to get across or if that's just my own sexist like brain like reading into it like oh yeah the chick she got what she wanted she got a fucking party but I mean I I think she enters into it knowingly yeah. But no, I mean not knowing that she's going to be raped. Yeah. But I think because when he even when he kisses her for the first time, I I feel like she she goes for it. But mm. then his aggressiveness obviously, you know, set, yeah. turn, turns her off. There's so much about those characters, so much more about those characters than Yuri and Lara. Like mm. I'm so much more interested in Pasha Komarovsky yeah. and Lara than I am in Yuri and Lara, which is the main yeah. crux of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's like because you expect this movie's about the Russian Revolution, and maybe you want to see more of like the political side of it, <clears throat> and you don't as much. It's more about 
this romance. And I don't know if that was like a thing that Boris Pasternak had to kind of, he, he, if he tried to moderate the political message somewhat, so it wouldn't be quite as obvious and he wouldn't draw the wrath of the authorities like he did. I mean, he did anyways. So, right. Uh, uh, or did he really just want to tell the story of this romance without as much on the political side, which seems unlikely. I don't know. Like I, <laughs> Russia I don't... was a place where you, if you were writing an allegory, you'd want to maybe, maybe make he a thought big if point. he, if he put the romance in it, it would help to kind of soften it. But, yeah. may, but I, I guess, I guess he, he knew right away it wasn't going to because yeah. he, because all the uh, methods he used to get it published. Yeah. Because ultimately the revolution is not the point of the story. The story is the story of Yuri and Lara. Right. And so the first couple times Yuri and Lara actually meet, did you notice there's always something uh, like separating them, like something in between? So, so the first, first time, time he sees her through the window, through the window. Yeah, uh, I, I wrote down, I wrote down glass wall because that's what I thought it was at first. <laughs> it's called a window, Brendan. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was weird to me because I was like, he's not. I don't think he's outside. Like it was just, it was. Eh, it just looked at it weird. But yeah, he sees her through a window uh, several times mm-hmm. before he actually finally interacts with her. This movie is three hours and 20 minutes. They don't have a conversation together. I wrote this down 82 minutes into the movie. Is this shortly before the intermission, maybe? or It's right when they go... It's it's when they go to to the, uh, to, to the front. Okay, when, they, when the, they set up the field hospital. Yeah. That's the first time they talk the to each other. first time they talk to each that's other. That's insane. Yeah, it's a lot of Even stuff. a movie like... Again, I'm going back to Titanic. Even a movie like Titanic, they have their... Uh, DiCaprio and Winslet have their first conversation 25, 30 minutes in. Mm-hmm. Of a three hour, and it's like the same length as this yep. movie. I feel like that's, I feel like it hurts the movie. Yeah, it, but it's also a different time, a different approach to filmmaking. You know, where you would give much more time up front to like really like try to lay out these the context of these characters before they meet. But that is a, that is a long time to go. Do you feel like the romance is? Do you feel I it's like, kind of crammed into the end of it in a lot of ways? Yeah, like, like I everything's like, build up to it, but then it actually you know, look Omar Sharif and Julie Christie great actors mm-hmm. separately their performances yeah I'm n- no complaints but together do you feel like they have the chemistry i mean it didn't really stand out to me it wasn't electric it like, wasn't it, it wasn't like i thought like these two like are clearly meant for each other like it wasn't titanic levels no no even like i'm not even joking like yeah. even dicaprio and winslet and titanic yeah. i think had better chemistry yeah, i would say uh and that was their first movie together so i mean i i don't know i just i this movie almost feels cold to me yeah, at times. Absolutely, um, especially in comparison to the you know again Lawrence Arabia and Virgin of Requi, uh, which where... I'm interested in because it's because I've actually never seen those movies. Well, so you'll like them, I hope. <laughs> well, coming soon, we'll maybe, 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 maybe. A, maybe a long time. Yeah. Is there, so, is there anything else you want to say, kind of about? Uh... Uh, there was one line specifically I wanted to point out. Well, oh, oh you know, what we haven't talked about Klaus Kinski is in this movie. <laughs> Klaus Kinski. Very briefly. By the way, he's electric. He's great. He's uh, great. He, and he he is so like he stands out so much oh, from yeah. everybody else because he's like everybody else are like these dirty Russian peasants, and then there's this smoldering, good-looking Klaus Kinski there, at least compared to everybody else. But here's the thing: Did you know that his Someone dubbed all his lines. Really? Yeah, I did not know it's that. It's not him talking. Is it was his accent too thick? I I, I would assume because it's 1965 and he probably didn't know English very well. But like he just he's a, yeah he is electrifying because you can't take your eyes off him. He's right there and he's just standing out so strong amongst everybody else. Klaus Kinski is in the scenes where uh, they're on the train. The, going... Yeah, Yuri and Tanya, Tanya. and Alexander. Alexander, and who is like his uncle Father-in-law. or whatever. 
Yeah, father-in-law slash uncle. Slash uncle. Okay, can we, we need to address this. We don't know for sure. No, I'm 90% sure that he marries his cousin. Because in the scene where... Um, so we're going to backtrack a lot here. So earlier in the movie, right at the top, where, uh, by the way, Omar Sharif's son playing young Yuri. Yeah. And Omar directed his own son. Oh, did not know that. Yeah. Uh, but young Yuri, when he's in the house, uh, when he's in this new house, which is, uh, you know, uh, his... So so this woman comes in and she says, your, mo- your mother was my sister. So that makes her his aunt. Mm-hmm. And if that's his aunt, then the other man is his uncle, and then Tanya is his cousin. Which was just perfectly, like, like the usual thing to do, I suppose, back in that era. All right. Well, I have Don't an you issue want to with, marry your cousin, Brandon? I, I have an issue. <laughs> I mean, not all of them. <laughs> some, of them are, some of them are fairer than others. Um, I have an issue with the kid not being deformed. Like, yeah. I mean, they have a kid together. She and, you know, she's... she's a hard-looking girl, but uh, <laughs> wait, in, a saying, good way, in a good way. Are you saying the kid is a hard-looking girl? Yeah, yeah. Well, because she's a worker, right? She's got a bit of a tomboy to her, and you know, I like that sort of thing. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna criticize. This has but. been fetish talk with <laughs> Jason. And Brendan. But yeah, that, that 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 I I was just like, hold on a second, that's his cousin. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, but it also, I will say that Wikipedia indicates that they're friends of the parents, so I don't know. It could be either. Well, and I did a Google search, and I'm probably going to get a ding for this on my like uh, somewhere in, like some legal database or something. But I I did a Google search for Doctor Zhivago incest, <laughs> and there wasn't much that came up. So maybe I'm the only one that kind of thought be. this. I don't know. Maybe maybe this you should start a blog with some fan fiction. Some slash fiction. Yep. Some slash oh wait, no, fiction. that would be that would have to be like Yuri and Yuri like Victor Graf or something. Yuri and Victor. Yuri and Victor. There you go. Um, the the uh, so, yeah, Klaus Kinski. Yeah, uh, really a standout. Uh, he uh, he's he's on the train and basically he's like a prisoner. He's in he's, the movie for maybe five minutes. Yeah, but he he helps make the point of like they they say that uh, that there is voluntary labor on the train, but he is not voluntary labor. He's clearly forced labor because as soon as the guy leaves, he's immediately recuffed. Yeah. To the uh, to the to the train, and he likes to call people lickspittle. Yeah, lickspittle. How did you feel about Pasha's transformation into Stromakov? Uh, it made sense. Like, yeah. uh, as were far you as surprised man, at I, that revelation? I was actually because I assumed that he had died in the conflict, and that was my mistake. Yeah. I assumed that he had just died in World War One, and you know, because that happened. So many young men died in that conflict, and but no, he's back, and he's like hardcore, just burning villages and murdering civilians, and not giving a single goddamn fuck. Well, and can I tell you what I really liked about his transformation is that in a lot of these movies, sometimes when you watch a movie with a lot of characters and a very long movie, you, mm. I get uh, uh, white guy face blindness. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that he gets that scar, yeah. he it, stands it, out. as soon as you see the scar, you know it's yeah. him. I think otherwise I would I might have had a hard Probably time. Probably lost in the mix. Oh, it's, but he also had glasses too. It, it's true. It's just like, I, do you find that like is that is that a thing that other people have? Like I get white guy face blindness from movies sometimes, mm. especially if there's a lot of characters. But along with along with the attitude that Pasha has, like mm. I, I I mentioned, like the idea that he's like gone hard as fuck, and that 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 is like that seems to be a hallmark of the of the, of the most hardest of hardcore revolutionaries because at one point. Uh, Zhivago is talking to a guard. Uh, I forget what the guard's name is, but he says... Uh, Yuri? 
No, Yuri Zhivago was talking to a guard on the train, right? Okay. And, and it was when they, um, I think when that lady came up and she had the baby, and she hands it out of the train, oh. and then it turns out the baby is dead, and by it's the, not even her baby? By the way, that lady, that actress almost died. Really? Trying to get pulled onto the train? When she falls, yeah. that is legitimate. Oh, fuck. She, all, she scratched up her knees really bad. She had to go uh, take about a week off mm. to go to the hospital. She returned to the set, and they finished home in that scene. Damn. But yeah, that was real. That That's She crazy. almost died. But, uh, so anyways, they... Um, so somebody's dead. Actually, and this and this actually may have even been later. I don't remember for sure, but uh, where somebody's dead and or has been killed, and and the guard just goes, "It doesn't matter." Hmm. And he goes, and and Zhivago goes, "Didn't you ever love a woman once?" And then he says the guard's name, and he goes, "I once had a wife and four children," and then turns around and walks away. And it's just like he's he's so commit. He's like he's now are, are his wife and children dead. I don't know, but it's like whatever happened, he's just, it doesn't matter. He's focused on the revolution. He's focused on I the I didn't thing. even catch that moment. Yeah, he doesn't, he's just is representative it, of the kind of people that are running this show, the it, people that don't have anything left. Is this the guard that comes in and makes that kind of announcement that, uh... I don't think so, where, but yes, I know what you're talking where about. Where Klaus Kinski is, like, heckling yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, where he's heckling him. Yeah. No, I think it's a little bit later on. Okay. Uh, but anyways, because it's near the end of the movie, but I just, yeah, that, that stuck out to me. This movie has a good example of a, a quote-unquote British sex scene in that we don't see any sex. We see, we see, okay, and we don't even see, like, passionate kissing. It's literally like she grabs his face and mwah, 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 like, and like getting kisses sh- all over. Which, no, to be fair, I enjoy that as well, but that's not, <laughs> I'm not fucking a girl while just going mwah, 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 mwah. They also <laughs> shove their faces into each other. They shove that, their faces that's, into that's each very, other. That's a very old movie type yeah. thing. Um... Yeah, so, uh, for, okay, so my thing is, the last hour of this movie, Yeah, I wasn't into it that much. No, it's 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 very much, it's finishing out the story, but it's like, it's not building toward anything. It's not building toward, like, a massive, some sort of action-based climax or, like, a really important thing. It's like, it's like oh, this is what happened, and then he died. Yeah, like, the, the whole thing where he gets, so, the last hour of the movie is obviously them being, uh, Yuri and Tanya and Alexander being in this cottage, and that's when he starts actually, like, cheating on her with, uh, Lara. Mm. And just this whole thing is like, I don't know. It's just, it's not like the first hour is my favorite part. Yeah. It's very thrilling. It's building, building, building right up to the gunshot when Lara shoots, Mm -hmm. uh, Kamarowski, all that whole thing. I think that's the best section of the movie. Um, the middle section is decent. And then the last section I think just is not, is not really my cup of tea. The the last section is all dependent on their chemistry. And that's why I think they don't have amazing chemistry. I don't you know what? That's probably a hot take, and I apologize if people love the. I know people love this movie, but like, I don't know. It just yeah. did not. Feel no, I feel like you. It. it just it didn't it didn't engage me the way other movies have, and and with certain characters and relationships. Uh, but you know, they, they did their best. I mean, because like I say, they're all great actors in this movie. I mean, David Lean doesn't fuck around when it comes to his cast. Oh yeah, and I'm not like I'm not saying the film is poorly made no. in the slightest at all. However, I will say I do like the ending. Uh, I think it's one of the most heartbreaking ends to a romance yeah, <laughs> ever. Yeah, it is real bad. Because at first... Okay, so I watched this movie twice. Yeah. Because uh, apparently I don't have... Because apparently I have all the free time in the you world. You have all the free time. But I, I, I'm not going to lie. I When I watched it the second time, I fast-forwarded the last half hour a That's few okay. times. That's <laughs> okay. But, we'll uh, forgive you. But, but 
Yuri, so Yuri, like we mentioned, Yuri was on this train and he thinks he sees Lara. The first time I watched it, I thought it was Lara. Mm. I watched it again, and I was like, oh no, I don't think it is. Well, that, that's the thing. I, I was having the same thought too because, like, when you see her face, it's like, oh, is she just some Russian peasant? Like, is she just some other girl that they, has blonde hair and they is do wearing a, a kerchief? Well, they do a really good job because, like, you see her face, but it's sort of out of focus, mm. and you think, like, oh, is that her? Um, I don't think it is. Mm. I think it's supposed to be Yuri thinking he sees her. Yeah. Because I think if it was her, as soon as she looked in the window and saw him, she would obviously stop mm. and say something. But uh, basically, his last moments are reaching out for her and just succumbing to a heart attack yeah. and dying. Not even being able to shout out, like, Lara. Yeah, anything. yeah. But then she goes to his funeral. So that's why I'm like, well, she must have... She she heard of it somehow. Mm. I don't... Anyway. Um... Okay, one one big thing I want right. to mention here. One b- big, big thing, overlying thing. He's a poet. And he doesn't know it. <laughs> he's a poet and he's a medical... Uh, he's a general practice mm. medical practitioner. A doctor. Doctor. That's what they call them. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, do you find it weird that we never heard any of his poetry? Or really even saw him practice medicine all that much? Yeah. I mean, a little bit, but... <laughs> it's yeah, like... yeah. But I mean, it's one of those things. Like, could they have written a good poem? I mean, maybe not. That's true. Maybe David Lean or whoever wrote this movie wasn't much of a poet. But then yeah. Boris Pasternak was a fucking poet, so maybe he could have written a poem. <laughs> Careful. Sorry. I just, I just, I get excited. <laughs> um, but I, I'd love to know if in the novel, if there's actually poetry. I would assume there is. I'm going to just have to assume because I'm probably not going to read it. Well, I like, no, well, we said <laughs> Boris Pasternak won a fucking Nobel yeah. Prize for, for poetry. For poetry. So, I mean, it's got, there's got to be something in there. Um, something. So I, uh, what is there anything else I wanted to say about the, anything else you want to mention about just the 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 any plot points or anything that you wanted to mention or any scenes in particular uh, that stick out to you? Um, uh, let's see. I, I do think see. that this movie commits a sin of uh, uh, telling us a lot more than showing. I mm-hmm. think Stromlikov's death scene would have been interesting to see. Yeah. They definitely could have shot it, even if even if they could show everything. Um, I also realized that this movie kind of kind of starts and finishes the same way because it starts or not, maybe not starts and finishes but you know at the near the beginning Yuri is hurrying to get on a train mm. where Laura is on and at the end he's hurrying to get off a train where he sees Laura. Ah, ah full circle fancy uh, I just I'm just I just want to say that I'm, I'm glad this movie exists because there's not a lot of movies about the Russian Revolution is, is in the West like the you know, give any sort of insight into what actually happened there. We've, you know, we've, if you take history class, you might have an idea what's going on. But, you know, of course, if you grew up in that era, so much of that was propaganda anyways. Like, to actually get a movie about that is kind of neat. Uh, so, I'm happy to see that. Uh, Do you want to hear a little bit of David Lean actually directing? Sure. Okay. Let's hear what he sounds so like. So, this is David Lean. Uh, basically, this is right before he's about to call action. This is a very quick clip. But is this so. from Zhivago? Or from Zhivago. Okay. Yep. So that's David Lean, basically, uh, everybody out. It's time to direct the movie. Get out of my way. Everybody doesn't need to be here. Leave. Now, here's the craziest part. So I found a clip of Omar Sharif talking about David Lean. Now, 
in the in retrospective clips, you know, people say like, "Oh, so and so was difficult. So and so was hard to work with." This is keep in mind. This is from 1965 or 1964, whenever they were shooting. Doctor so this is contemporary. Yes, uh, this movie. By the way, Rod Steiger. Yeah. Was on set for a year. A year. A year. He's is he, he's not even in the movie that much. He's not <laughs> in the movie that much. Even in the first hour, like his scenes are like spread yeah. spread out, and he has like two quick scenes later in the movie. Yeah. A year. Wow. Can you imagine how long Omar Sharif was on this movie for? He never did anything else. <laughs> that was all he did for that year. An eighth of his life. Yeah, um, so this is Omar Sharif talking about David Lean and not pulling any punches. He's a man who's very easy to hate. In other words, it is very easy to hate David and very difficult to like him. He He's a very hard man, a very selfish man, who has no pity for anyone and none for himself either which is which is a very rare thing he has no self-pity and uh, no self-indulgence and therefore it is very easy uh, very difficult for him to pity anybody else or to feel sorry for anybody however tired they may be he considers everybody on the set everybody who's helping to make the film as objects rather than as people they are the things that are making his film and well, you can see how easy it is uh, if you think that he's considering you as an object, how easy it is to be terribly unhappy and rather hate him for it. So he's the sort of director that the the actors are human props to him. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, the, to me, he sounds a lot like Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Alfred of, Hitchcock right. was very much like actors are cattle. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you could just... You tell them where to go and what to do, and they do it, and that's all you need them for. And I don't have time. And he didn't have time for egos. But like Hitchcock, you can see it works. <laughs> it works on the screen. For I the mean, most part. yeah, but that—that's crazy. Yeah. You have Omar Sharif, yeah. the star. He'd already done Lawrence of Arabia, so he was—he was familiar well with David Lean's uh, technique. Yes. Yeah, and, and well known to the public for yeah. sure. Going on record, this behind-the-scenes interview in 1965, saying David Lean is easy to hate. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine them shooting like Aquaman and Jason Momoa just doing an interview on set and being like, you know, Amber Heard was a real bitch. <laughs> You'd never see that nowadays. No. Um, shout out to uh, uh, Amanda's Picture Show A Go Go, another podcast on the Potter and Family uh, Network. You can follow her at uh, at Amanda's Pick Show uh, because she, she I mentioned that to her and she actually said, I guess Omar Sharif has a kind of reputation of being very. Uh, open, hmm. being very like I'm not gonna cut, uh, blur any lines. Like I'm just gonna say what I'm feeling. You know what that's I mean? A, that's the bridge player in him. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how bridge is played. So don't don't come at me. <laughs> come at me, bro. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like I said, Rod Steiger was on the set for 12 months. I still think that's insane. That's nuts. Uh, well, is there anything I wanted to and mention? Uh, one thing that was interesting among the highly diverse international cast in this movie, this film contains almost zero Russian actors, <laughs> um, or even actors of Russian heritage. Yeah, well, I mean, what were you gonna do? So, you want to hear about what the critics thought of this movie at sure. the time? Sure, give me give me a laydown. Okay, lowdown. Roger Ebert at the time huh. uh, regarded it as this. It's an example of superb old-style craftsmanship at the service of a soppy romantic vision. <laughs> and he wrote that the story, especially as it had been simplified by Lean and his screenwriter Robert Bolt, seems political in the same sense Gone with the Wind is political, as spectacle and backdrop without ideology. Agreed. 
concluded he concluded that the political content is treated mostly as a sideshow. Yeah. It's not really about that. That's there. It's the color, but it's not the point. Uh, another reviewer, Jeffrey McNabb of The Independent, reviewed the film uh, when it came to the its 50th anniversary. So this was uh, a few years ago. And he said, uh, David Lean he had extraordinary artistry, but he said the film was bordering on kitsch. Uh, he said the musical score stood up, but he said the, he criticized the English accents. It's well, it's, it's kind of the Valkyrie problem. Like, you know, you, you could make a movie with a bunch of people doing fake Russian accents, or you could just let them do their natural accents, and then it doesn't sound so cartoonishly stupid. So th- th- this movie was not well-received when it came out. No. This movie was torn apart. Newsweek said there were hack job sets and pallid photography. Photography? In yeah, the, the movie Dr. Zhivago. Oh, Aren't, aren't we fancy, Newsweek? Uh, David Lean was so distraught by this that he, he at the time, I mean, he did go on to make another movie, but he vowed he was never going to make another movie. He said, I'm done. I I can't take this. This is this is now killing me. Yeah, come on, David Lean, you're you're a hard man. Really, Newsweek getting mad at you is enough to to make you retire. And, and we think we think we call people pussies for shutting down Twitter today when they get abused by ten million people. But he gets one bad review and he's like, "That's it, I'm out." Well, here's the thing, though. What turns around for him is that uh, MGM had a very clever marketing campaign. And the film becomes the second highest grossing film of 1965 behind The Sound of Music. That's all right. Uh, went on to receive 10 Academy Award nominations. So it was nominated Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Costume Design, Best Original Score. All of those it won. It was also nominated for, but did not win, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Director, Best Editing, and Best Sound. Uh, Supporting Actor for Tom Courtney as Pasha. Again, the only actor nominated. Uh, however, uh, David Lean did continue making movies. He made Ryan's Daughter, mm-hmm. which received terrible reviews. I never even heard of it till today, honestly. Uh, and bombed, bombed very badly at the box office. Uh, he retired for over 14 years following that until he finally returned to make A Passage of India, and that was his last movie before his and death. I've not seen that, but I hear nice things about it, that it was his kind of typical epic. I feel like it may not come up for every movie, but I got a kind of a coulda, shoulda, woulda. Yeah. Uh, that is the... Uh, do you want to hear some people that were originally going to play these roles? Uh, was Gary Sinise supposed to play Commander Michael Dunn? I believe Gary Sinise is probably about 10 years old. Oh, so Kevin now. Dunn. Sorry, Commander Kevin Dunn. <laughs> still Gary Sinise. Still, <laughs> still about 10 years old. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. So Omar Sharif was originally going to play Pasha. I don't know if that would have worked out quite as well. Uh... Lara was originally going to be Jane Fonda. Yeah, okay, and, and you have this next one here, but yes, he went through a lot of choices for Zhivago before he settled on Omar Sharif. Yeah, so here we go. So Peter O'Toole. Which, I mean, come on, he was in Lawrence of Arabia. You can't cast the same fucking guy again. But again, that's Arabia. probably why he would originally yeah. considered him. Max von Sydow. Also a great actor. He was in Dune. Paul Newman. I don't think that would have worked. Mm, no, you you got to have somebody that's nominally has a little bit of like. Paul British Newman is the most American, culture. all American. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Doctor Zhivago. Uh, and Michael Caine. Michael Caine. I'm Doctor Zhivago. <laughs> I shat on a turtle. I, I'd like you to go through impressions of everybody. Else. <laughs> uh, for Komarovsky, he originally went to Marlon Brando. That would have been fine. Oh, you want? I'm waiting for your impression. <laughs> 
It wasn't. It was. You're a slut. You're a slut and a whore. Or that horrifying worst. line. What does he say? Don't call this rape. That would be. be- it would uh, be a compliment to both of us. Or something. <laughs> Do you remember that line? No. Oh, he fuck. says it right after he like assaults after her. After he rapes her. It's brutal. Um, uh, the other choice for Kamarovsky was James Mason. Uh, James Mason is Kamarovsky. But I don't know if James Mason would have been creepy enough. <laughs> James Mason is so British, but right. Steiger had that creepy factor. Uh, Audrey Hepburn was considered for Tanya. Which, she would have been amazing, because she was amazing. I'm Audrey Hepburn, and I'm doing Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, well, I'm Audrey Hepburn, and you don't know that I'm not Catherine Hepburn. They're the same person. <laughs> So the screenwriter Robert Bolt originally lobbied for Albert Finney to play Pasha. Which I don't know Albert Finney from that era, so I don't know yeah. if he would have been. But I mean, I like Albert Finney; he's a great actor. Well, I got a spoiler alert: we're going to see Albert Finney from that Ooh. era. <laughs> Is Gosford Park on this list? Oh wait, that's not from that era. <laughs> so, Jason, as we wrap up Doctor Zhivago, people are still trying to push this movie out of circulation. Did you know that? No, I didn't. In Russia, it's still it's slowly being pushed out of school curriculums. <sighs> To this day, 2018, people are still trying to get it out of the way. Come on, Russia. Come on. Listen to our sister podcast. Come on, Russia. Come on, Russia. (laughs) You know what you got to do, Russia, is that you got to make um you got to make your own epic blockbuster film about the American Revolution. There you go. That's what I want to see. I want to see Russia's take on the American Revolution. And I want to see really bad American accents. That's right. I want to see the worst. Uh, let's go to the baseball game. We will. Yeah, because baseball was so popular in the 1770s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 1770s. Isn't that when Jackie Robinson broke the color code? Yes, it color was. That was, uh, it was a long time ago. And America was... hasn't been racist since. I almost said sound barrier. <laughs> the sound barrier. Jackie Robinson broke the sound barrier in 1776. <laughs> you know you know your history. Guys, if you could take anything from this podcast, <laughs> please take the fact that Jackie Robinson broke the sound barrier in 1776. That's what we want you to remember. Um, So number 27... This is number 27 on the list. Now, I realize this is the first movie mm. we've done, mm. so it's kind of hard to be like, oh, I don't know where it should go. But uh, We will watch them again, but I, I would say that, that both Bridge on the Iroquois and Lawrence of Arabia, for me, are just are just uh, overall better movies. And... Well, those are higher. Yeah. Those are quite a bit higher. Um, there's only two other David Lean movies that actually fall below this. So, at this moment, I don't know about you, 27 seems high. Well, at this moment, by default, we have to say that, that Dr. Zhivago is is both the best and the worst British film ever made. <laughs> okay. Because we only have the one. So, right, by right. default, it is the top and the worst. Um, I will say, overall, I think it is a beautiful movie. Like, it's very well shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first hour and a half is very tense uh well acted i mean the whole thing is well acted but yeah oh, story, no, no question no the question. story is at its strongest i think for the first hour and mm-hmm. a half it really tapers off in the last hour i mean is it a classic i don't know i think it's good it's it's definitely worth a watch it's Except good for, for if you're a fan of film for sure it's worth a watch if you're like into film history you definitely should watch dr Zhivago. sure if it's just a movie you want to put on while you and your friends are drinking maybe pick a different one yeah <laughs> If you don't have a drinking game, Doctor yeah. Zhivago, unless you have a drink. Oh, every we're gonna t- drink every time she gets raped. That's <laughs> that's not that's not cool. Well, you'll have well, you have two drinks. Yeah, well, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> that's not a fun. That's not a fun-filled <laughs> drinking game, Jason. <laughs> oh my lord! No. So that's oh, Doctor Zhivago, our first and last episode. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get canceled off the internet. <laughs> um. 
So yeah, I don't know. So what do you so what do you think of the movie overall? Like, what are you overall? Say, I would say it is a, it is an interesting same? film. It is it is worth a watch because it does explore an era that maybe doesn't get as much coverage in Western media of the Russian Revolution. Uh, any chance to see Omar Sharif on screen, I'm happy with because I love the man and he's wonderful and, and buy his bridge game. Uh, you <laughs> know, but uh, but ultimately, like if, if you have to watch one David Lean movie, maybe pick Lawrence of Arabia, not this one. Okay, so out of all the David Lean movies you've seen, which is three? Uh, I've seen Lawrence Arabia, Doctor Vago, Bridge on River Kwai, and Gandhi. That's not a, that's not which David is not Lean. a David Lean movie, which we learned earlier. <laughs> which I haven't seen. No, I'd say those are the three that I've seen. And yeah, obviously Lawrence Arabia is my favorite. Okay, so I love Bridge on the River Kwai too. But... So this is so this is the weakest of the three, then. Yeah, of those three, in by... my humble opinion, by quite a bit, actually, by quite a margin. Yeah, because yeah, Bridge on the River Kwai is great, and and we'll we'll talk about it when we get there. But the yeah. dude, dude that plays the 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 Japanese colonel in that movie is so fucking good, and Alec Guinness is so fucking British. I mean, that, and that's what I want in my movies. I want Alec Guinness being as fucking British as possible. Well, guys, that was Dr. Zhivago. Um, I guess at this point, Jason, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to roll the dice. I get to so, roll? So we have... We have two D10s, one of which is a is a 10s D10 and one of which is a 1s D10, and that will determine our, randomly what our next film is. So, Jason. Yes. Roll that dice. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Our next movie is going to be movie number 31. 31. 31 so on the BFI Top 100 film list. 31. 31 is Zulu. Zulu. All right. That's Michael Caine, I believe, is in that one. Zulu I'm excited. directed by Cy Enfield. All right. So this uh, is this is some classic colonial British 1964. shit. 1964. So we're not we're not veering too far. We're not veering too far. This is going to be, uh, like I say, I, I believe I've watched... I, that was one of those movies that I can't remember if I watched it all or not, but I'm excited to watch Zulu again. Uh, okay. So. so join us next time for Zulu. Zulu. Number 31, 31. on the list. All right. Well, that about wraps it up. God save the queen. God save the screen. For screen and country. I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Adios. See ya. Okay, just a slight digression here. I get it if you don't like Last Jedi. That's fine. But there is no way that Last Jedi is a shittier movie than Phantom Menace. I've seen people, they put their lists out, they put Phantom Menace above Last Jedi. That is objectively wrong, and if you think that is true, then fuck you. There's some weird thing where people want to, like, love the prequels now, and I'm like, no, don't there's, remember No, them. those movies are terribly made movies, and it's like, I get it if you have, like, an attachment to them, but the thing is, is that Star Wars, like, for instance, A New Hope is, is, is a fine movie. Like, it's a finely constructed film. Yeah. You may not like it, but you can't de- you can't deny that it is a properly constructed film. Right. Those prequels are not. No. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Back, <laughs> back to the Russian Revolution. Back to Doctor Zhivago. It's time. Let's check our cue, baby. with a couple brews, baby. We love good movies. We love the bad ones too. So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you. Oh yeah. Ban out, ban out, ban out, ban out. Ban out, ban out, ban out.
Everything I learned from movies With a one last black holes of gratuitous boobies It's time to get busy with your friend Stephen At eilfm.podbean.com Hey, do you like movies? Hey, do you like podcasts? If you do, then come on down and listen to the Home Video Hustle podcast, homie. Hustle, hustle. Every Friday, we talk about whatever movie PJ picks out the bag. What does that mean? Well, every Wednesday on our YouTube page, I pick a bunch of movies at random. Sometimes there's a theme to it, sometimes not. PJ picks the movie out, and guess what? We watch it on Friday. We talk about it for about maybe an hour, hour and a half, whatever we feel like doing. Might give you something good to watch, baby. Come on down every Friday. So come get your hustle on with Home Video Hustle. You can find the show on any podcatcher app, or you can come down to homevideohustle.popping.com. All of them in one place for you. So you can go ahead and binge it like it's Netflix. We ain't the Defenders. Uh, but I like to think we a little bit better than that. <laughs> Come out at your boys, man. Come chill with us. Peace. Peace.